So we're about three-fourths way through our topical series and of things that you wanted to have sermons about. And one of these is one of those things where it was anger. And I was so glad to finally be able to preach on something that I don't struggle with. And so I struggle with anger. Are you an angry folk? Now be careful. Some people, when they get angry, they blow up. Some people, when they get angry, they clam up. Some people are burn red hot. Some people are icy cold. And sometimes it's the icy cold people that'll kill you because you don't see it coming. But do you struggle with anger like I do? Bad drivers. Those people who think a yield is a stop sign at the end of a ramp, and they stop before getting on the interstate. Then once they're on the interstate, where do they go? The far left lane, which is called the what lane? Get out of the passing lane. I don't care how fast you're going. Get out. It's not your right to be there when I'm behind you. Politicians make me angry. Taxes make me angry. The wokeness of our society makes me angry. Bad referees used to make me angry. Umpires? Until I became a referee, then coaches make me angry. Children make me angry. I asked one teenager here, I said, tell me the top three things that make you angry. And the first thing out of their mouth was biology. Then that person started thinking, what else could I say? And I said, how about mom or dad or sister? And she went, oh, I'm not going there. <laughs> How about that little rotating ball on your computer screen when you're in a hurry? Does that make you angry? I can't stand it when fast food restaurants mess up my order, and I really hate it when they deliver the hot steak to my table and I'm sitting there waiting for the, hot so for the steak sauce or the Tabasco sauce to come and my food's just getting cold. Neighbors can make you angry. Them not keeping their house up or their barking dog. People walking on the roof above you in an apartment complex can make you mad. Losing can make you mad. I asked Gordon what made him mad. His, one of his key answers was bad theologians, people who just really mess up the Bible. What makes you mad? In their book called Untangling Emotions, Groves and Smith state the following. If fear is the most common struggle Scripture deals with, anger is the most dangerous. Because anger can harness such enormous energy. It has the capacity to vastly reduce the darkness of our broken world by righting wrongs and protecting the myriad fragile. It can do good things around us, but it can wreak vast destruction. So I want to walk you through what anger is a bit, what God thinks of anger, what the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger is, and where maybe I fall into this and where you do, and maybe how Christ can help us. First of all, God created us with two different realities, hence the picture behind me. There's this material reality. Uh, we have skin, muscles, bones. We teach our kids to sing the song, head and shoulders, knees and toes. We have muscles, bones, hearts, brains, lungs, livers, gallbladders. At least some of us do. 
I found out this week that your body, my body, is made up of oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. That's 99% of what our bodies are made up of. We're just a bunch of chemical reactions. There's the visible part of our body that can be seen, the physical part of our body that can be touched, the scientific part of our body that can be examined, tested, treated. This is called matter. It's what the scriptures call the body or the flesh. So we have this material part. I see the material part of you. Secondly, we have this immaterial part to us. This is what the scripture calls the soul, the spirit, the mind, the will, the conscience. If you knew your Hebrew, the bowels or the heart. It's this other part of us that is real. It's been created. It hasn't always existed. It's an invisible part that cannot see, be seen, a spiritual part that cannot be touched. It cannot be measured. We have a part that matters, but this part is not matter. This is the immaterial part of us. In this immaterial part, thirdly, God created us to love. These affections are supposed to come out of this heart of ours. We have our fondest dreams in our soul, our greatest hopes in our spirit, our priceless treasures in our mind, our real desires in our will, our true values in our conscience, our passionate loves in our bowels, our highest affections and our deepest emotions. Those things, they, they don't come from the physical part of us. They come from our hearts. And what do we want? We want the same things that God wants. I mean, we're supposed to. I mean, that's how we've been created. God loves pleasure and happiness. We're supposed to love pleasure and happiness. God loves respect. We're supposed to love respect. God loves community. We're supposed to love community. God loves morality. We're supposed to love morality. And it's supposed to come out of that inside of us. That's the way he created us to be. It's not evil to have lusts and cravings and desires and passions. You can't get away from them. When you get to heaven, you will still have them. God has these. He presents himself as a God that pleasures in things and has desires and goals. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, he had all the same affections and emotions that you have, yet without sin. It's Buddhism that says you need to put those behind you. It's asceticism that says you've got to dumb those down. Christianity says you don't love enough. You don't have enough passion. You don't have enough desire. And when you do, it's not for the right things. So God does not want you to desire less. He wants you to have greater affection. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love morality. It's supposed to flow from the inside out. We were made to love in this way. So you've got the material part, you've got the immaterial part. From the immaterial part, we are called to be creatures of love and affection. And this may surprise you. We are called to be angry people. God created us to have immaterial anger. Anger is an emotion. It's not a thing. It's an emotion we have. 
All emotions are given to us by God. All emotions are created by God. All emotions flow from God. This is kind of one of his communicable attributes that he gives to us. God is an angry being, or as Alistair Grove says, the Bible actually presents God himself as the angriest character in all of Scripture. Yes, anger is an attribute of God. When God wished to announce himself to Moses and to Israel, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. But he has anger. And later on, he's the one who pours out justice on the children's children. According to David, when God is angry in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, and he's a God who feels indignation every day. So according to God's word, God is angry every single day. Paul when he decides to write his great systematic theology work, his corpus on the grace of God, it starts with what? Those first chapters. And you know those famous verses. For the wrath of God is poured out against a whole bunch of things. It's like Paul can't help you understand the gospel until you first understand the wrath of God. John says the wrath of God abides on anyone who will not believe in the Son of God for mercy. And in Colossians 3, it says, Put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, with idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So God presents himself as wrath. He has wrath every day. The gospel saves you from his wrath. And all those who are not saved by the gospel from his wrath, on account of these things that we do, the wrath of God is coming. From beginning to end, I think Paul has 50 times where he mentions the wrath of God. God is an angry God. Not only angry, not primarily angry, but always angry. Jesus is angry. Jesus is the man who had emotions like us, yet without sin, and he showed his anger and his love when he was trying to do a miracle on the Sabbath and the Pharisees were coming against him in Mark chapter 3, he burned hot with anger. When he saw the harm of the disciples who wouldn't let the little children come, it says he became indignant, another word for angry. When Jesus saw the harm of the elders and what they were doing in the temple, Zeal for the Father's house, which is another Greek word that had have the idea of anger, consumed him. And he went through there turning over tables, calling names, kicking them out of the place of prayer. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, when he comes again, those who are not his friends will suffer what? The wrath of the Lamb. You see, God is angry, and he created Jesus... Jesus is the perfect man and he is angry. How can this be? It's because anger is the spouse of love. What do I mean by that? They go together. They go hand in hand. Or in the idea of marriage, you can't have one without the other. God created Jesus and us 
to have this high affection, this deep emotion. We're to love something. I mean, not just appreciate or like it or, or, or tip our hat to it. We're to have these inner passions. And when we love something, we can't stand when it is wronged. When we love something or someone, we've got to make decisions when we see something being wrong. Is that acceptable or is it unacceptable? We make a moral decision. We make a, a discernment, a judgment, and it causes us this anger to respond. Anger is a mo an emotion that leads to motion. It, it, it's a gift from God, a tool of God to inspire us to really love that which we love. And so even in our physical bodies, when something comes and it makes you angry, you have an increased oxygen flow, your breathing increases, your blood flow increases. That gives you increased glu glucose and adrenaline, increased energy, your muscles tempt up. You are ready for action. Maybe good action. Maybe the kind of action that will land you in prison. But this is a gift from God because you love something, therefore you absolutely must hate and be angry at that which harms that which you love most. Anger is a tool to help us address a problem and find a solution, and it's an attribute of all made and remade in God's image. So because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have commands like this, the one that is the text, I guess, from which this sermon flows. Romans 12, 8. Listen. Let love be genuine. So what would genuine love look like? Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil or abhor, depending on your translation. Hold fast to what is good. That's a command. And if that's not clear enough, in Ephesians 4, 26, Paul writes and he commands the following of Christians. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You are to be angry. It is a command. So how great is our love? When we really love our spouse, when I really love Laura, I get angry at those who want to hurt her. When I really love God, I get angry and hate false gods. When I really love Christ, I get angry and hate the spirit of Antichrist. When I really love truth, I get angry and hate error. When I really love morality, I get angry and hate immorality. When I really love justice, I get angry and pursue justice and hate injustice. And when I really love my brothers and sisters, I get angry and cannot stand it when they are getting abused. So you see, now we have two ways of sinning because we've been called to be loving and we've been called to be angry, we can sin by loving wrongly. We can sin by not loving enough rightly. We can sin in anger by sins of commission. When we get anger at the wrong things or we express it in the wrong way, that's a sin of commission. But I can also have a sin of omission. When I don't love my God and His ways and His kingdom, His morality enough, that I'm no longer angry at that who wants to dishonor him. So now I have two ways or three ways or four ways. I don't know how many of looking at my life already and saying, oh boy, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none righteously angry. 
No, not me. I don't think you're the exception either. We're to engage ourselves in righteous, loving, gentle, patient, and long-suffering and self-controlled. If you're taking notes, I'll, I can send you these. We're to engage in anger, but listen to these characteristics. We're to be righteously angry, lovingly angry, gently angry, patiently angry, long-suffering in our anger, and self-controlled in our anger, because that's how God's angry. And therefore, we engage ourselves in spiritual war. We also can get involved in politics and the defense of the abused in our nation. We can also serve our country and be involved in defending our nation. And we can engage in self-defense. And all of that present ways in which we can be righteously angry, potentially, but not actually. Why? Well, number five, God creates us to encounter tests and temptations. We know from the Bible that God ordains whatever comes to pass. Now, that's what it says in the Westminster Confession. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So let's just make sure we understand what the whatsoever means. There is nothing that's happening to you that has not been ordained by God. God ordains uh, what happens in the heavens with the demons and angels. God ordains what happens on the earth. He created the earth. The sun rises. Oh, that's in the universe. He, the rain, that's from God. Flood, that's from God. The big things like who are kings and who are presidents and where, when we go to war, that's all ordained by God. The small things like the hairs that fall from your head, the sparrows or mosquitoes. God ordains and providentially ordains organizes and orders and oversees. How's that for some O's? Everything. And in the book of Job, you see it all. God is the one who ordains and organizes and oversees Satan. All the things that wicked people do, God is the one who gives. He's the one who makes rich. He's the one who gives babies. He's the one who lets you have peace. And he's the one who takes away. He's the one who makes you impoverished by natural disaster or by some kind of a fraud or by the wicked people invading your land or by storm. God gives or he takes away. That's what God does. And why does God do it? Well, the big answers are because he's got his own reasons for his own will. He's got his plan and his plan is centered around uh, building his kingdom, promoting his son and helping us grow and mature. But those are the big answers. That doesn't help you who are really hurting now. So why is he letting you be hurt today? Why is he bringing these issues that make you angry today? I don't know. I think that's one of the major points of Job. Forget trying to tell people why God's what he's doing, doing what he's doing. Who knows? But he's in control. And the devil does his work as he did in Job to hurt you, to tempt you, to try to get you to be unrighteously angry. But God allows all that and ordains it and organizes it as a test to show you things about yourself, as a trial. 
but also as a tool of sanctification to help you grow. But all those things that I mentioned before about God sending things our way, whether it be poor drivers or poor service, it comes from God. And in the Bible, God tells us what he thinks about our reaction. Point six, God is sad and angry at our righteous anger. You see, God has told us in the Bible, and I have lots of verses here. I'm not going to go through them. But he tells us what good anger looks like. It's loving. It comes from those who pursue peace, truthfully. It's patient and slow and self-controlled and short. It doesn't endure for long. It keeps no record of wrongs. And its purpose is for God's glory, his church, and for the good of his image bearer. It's profitable. But he also tells us what bad anger looks like. You can't even get out of the early chapters of Genesis without seeing the anger of Satan addressed at God, displayed on Adam and Eve, followed by the anger of Cain, addressed at God, displayed on Abel. And on and on it goes, as Lamech then writes his songs about how angry he is. A quick man, a man of quick temper, acts foolishly. A man of evil devices is hated. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is hasty exalts folly. Over and over I can read, and you get to the New Testament passages, and here's the interesting news. You people who all get all worked up about certain sexual sins in our land, in those same passages are those people who are factions, or those people who cause dissension, or those people who are quick to anger. When you look in those lists, I ask you the question, are you as disappointed about the anger either exploding from you or imploding with inside as you are about all that sexual promiscuity by its various names out there? Are you as concerned about A-N-G-E-R as you are L-G-B-T-Q? I'm concerned about it all. I should be. But it's much easier for me to focus on all those bad things they do out there with their lusts and ignore the bad things that happen in here with my lusts. But God looks and he's not impressed and he sees our unrighteous anger and it makes him sad and mad. He doesn't like it when John McEnroe used to break his rackets. He doesn't like it when those baseball coaches go up to the mound and start screaming and cursing and, and kicking dirt all over the mound and having a temper tantrum. He doesn't like it when our kids have their temper tantrums laying on the kitchen floor. He sees us like Cain with his anger. When Potiphar got unrighteously angry at Joseph, God saw it and it made him sad. When Balaam got angry and cursed the prophetic donkey. When Saul was angry and was hurling javelins at David. Or Jonah was angry that God saved the Ninevites and then took his tree. God looks and he hates that. So whenever I would, with great pomp, pompousness probably is a better word, yell, 
sir, that's a horrible call, as loud as I could across the soccer pitch. God wasn't impressed that I started with sir. God sees how I used to discipline my children. It was no light sin as I exploded with rage that they would mess up my fantasy land. When I am snide or sarcastic or cold to Laura, or even when I want to be, but no, not to do that because it's Saturday and I got to preach on Sunday. That's not cool just because I didn't express my anger. And when I complain and whine and groan about politicians or the weather or bad drivers or they forgot to put the ketchup in the bag. In reality, I am whining and groaning and complaining against my God and the way he orders and orchestrates all things. And you won't have to look hard to find some theologians who will tell you it's okay to be angry at God. There's nowhere in your Bible where it says it's okay to be angry at God, for God is not the tyrant that you must learn to forgive. God is the one who knows what's best. In my own life, I'm known mostly as an internal processor when it comes to anger, although my kids can just look at my face. My wife can tell on the phone with my voice. I'm not one who explodes. Just kind of hold it all in for a while. But that's what makes me a horrible counselor. Sometimes as a pastor, I won't tell you the things that I need to be saying along or reconcile quickly. Just hold it in, suck it up, because I, I get paid to look pretty. But one day it'll come out. And when it does, it won't be the gracious, gentle, loving manner it should have been all along. It will just be me being a self-worshipping idiot who couldn't hold it in any longer. I couldn't hide my sin so it finally comes out. But I'm mostly an internalizing, angry person. But God is not pleased as he sees my supreme love of self, my self-preeminence that my will must be done. And he doesn't like it when I play judge, jury, and executioner and make a discernment, give sentence, and carry it out. He also doesn't like it when I don't hate wickedness as I ought, which I don't ever. As a matter of fact, I love unrighteousness, and I have to repent of that every single day. Yes, God sees our affection that we're too little like him, we're too... We have too little love for him, too little love for them, and too much love for us. He sees the clamming up, the pouting, the sulking, the passive-aggressive nature. He also sees when we explode, when we blow up, when we cry and raise our voice, when we name-call and curse, throw things and hit things, scare people and harm people, even kill people. He sees even when we are right to be angry, but we show it in the wrong way. God sees our sin, how it's mispracticed. He sees our passivity, how it's not practiced, and he's sad or displeased. He sees the damage we do to our mission, that by our anger we lose our Christian testimony, and people aren't impressed with our God. 
He sees the damage that we do others. And people here in this room, how many of you are already today, or still today, haunted by the anger that was expressed wrongly at you many years ago? He sees the vengeance, the striking, the hatred, the unkindness, the deceit, all of that. It makes him sad and displeased. He sees the physical consequences of of those who keep it all bottled up. The hypertension, the digestive issues, and the high blood pressure. The financial issues as you did something wrong and someone sued you or you lost your best employee or your customers just don't want to do business with you anymore because they don't like the way you treat them. And then there's the relational consequences. I wonder how many days in my life when my kids heard the garage door open, there were days when they would run out, Daddy! There were other days when they weren't happy to see Dad home because when he got home, the whole environment changed. Are you that man? Some of you know what it's like to walk on eggshells. I hate that I've been that man in my family. I can be a blast, I think. I can come home and be the life of the party and the most gracious guy you ever met. And there are other days when I come home and you just can almost feel the tension is what's going on with dad. Some are just missing the joy. You're walking through life and just everything makes you angry. God sees the damage. The physical, the financial, the relational. How about this damage? The generational. You see, anger is learned by nature. You're born this way. No one teaches your toddler how to have his explosion in the restaurant in the high chair but it's also learned by nurture. And some of us are angry, not me. My dad was not an angry guy. But some people learn their anger by watching their coaches. And some people by watching their moms. What does God think? In Romans 1, it says, the wrath of God is revealed. And if you go to the end against those full of envy, malice, murder, strife, maliciousness, slanderers, insolent, haughty, boastful, foolish, heartless, and ruthless. That's why the title of this sermon is Unrighteous Anger Makes God Angry. It should make us angry as well. So I wrap up these last two points quickly because we're going to do some business with God in just about two minutes. So what do we do? Well, we can do anger management via common grace. Just look on the screen behind me. Yes, we can exercise and, oh, that'll help. Woo! Eat well. Quit eating those foods that intensify the anger. You can schedule relaxation relaxation time and do meditative breathing. Turn on some cool music and listen to music and sing along. Find something humorous. If you can start laughing, that helps. Take a time out. 
write down your thoughts, do that cognitive therapy work of thinking through what is reality, uh, focus on solving problems. When you communicate to someone who's made you angry, communicate with the eye and, and listen. These are all just good things. Talk with someone, really. Go find someone here, there. It's just good to talk it out, get a perspective other than yourself, and avoid those triggers. Sometimes you just need to flee and run, and there's just going to be people who get under your crawl, whatever that means. Stay away from them. Don't go to those places. So I would say do all that. Do better. And then die and go to hell. Or, do all that, be saved, and enjoy what Jesus Christ plans on doing in your life. We go to the final point here. There's anger adjustment, not anger management, but anger adjustment that happens through special grace. And so what does this look like? It looks like you, instead of ignoring your sins or pretending you don't sin, bowing the knee before Jesus Christ and saying, I am an angry person and I deserve nothing but the wrath of God, but I understand that you have poured out your wrath for me already on a substitute. And so now the wrath of God becomes something what? That I glory in instead of fear because it's already displayed his love by being poured out on Jesus. And this is for anyone who will bow the knee and kiss the son. If you want Christ you don't have to go to hell because you're angry and learning to manage it and aren't perfect. You can go to heaven despite the struggle you have with anger for the rest of your days because Jesus Christ has paid it all. Then be reminded of righteousness. It's the gospel that takes the mirror of the law and transitions it to the light or the lamp of the law. The mirror is no fun to look at because all it does is show you your sin. But once your sin has no hold on you anymore, or no bearing on your position with Christ, you're able to look back at the law and say, hey, remind me what righteous anger looks like. And then pray. Pray for discernment. Ask the Holy Spirit who lives within to help you see all the mixed motives and to help you see the areas in which you are still not walking in accordance with the law, the law of righteous anger. And keep confessing your sins. That's why I say anger's not a thing. It's not like this hulk within us that just explodes that we have no... No, anger's us. We're the ones who are angry. That's why we need repentance and grace and not just a conversation with someone or a technique. We confess our sins, and then what do we do? We pray. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. You see, the Spirit can do within that which therapeutic techniques cannot. So we can have all the benefit of the therapeutic techniques and the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. Then gather together for worship. When you come to places like this, you hear sermons like this, which hopefully are reminding you of how you can't perform and do good enough, and, but Jesus Christ loves you and he wants you to address this in your life. Why? For there are great benefits that come when you walk in the power of the Spirit. And yes, you can pursue justice still while you do this. 
While you do it, also be the most humble man in the room as you pursue justice and love. Remember the grace you have been given. Forgive as you pursue justice and try to pursue reconciliation even while you may need to pursue justice. And know that it won't all work out well in this life. People will still do you wrong and God will still ordain more temptation, tests and trials in your life. But God is so angry with sin and so angry with unrighteous anger that he will one day eradicate it from your universe in glory. And he may choose to cut the knees out from under it in your life so that people can back away one day and look at you and give glory to the Father for what they see, the works of Jesus Christ in you. There is hope eternal and there is hope temporal. Jesus Christ can be the great physician who treats your anger issue. That's why I end by saying let anger be a trigger for prayer. When you're angry, go to prayer. It'll all work out. You'll be able to confess your sin. You'll be able to see where he's instilling righteous anger in you. You'll be able to make good decisions with your anger. When you're angry, let it be a trigger for prayer. 